I'm Chris Chang and Phillips, and this is Let's Find Out, a podcast about the history of Edmonton, Alberta, or Amiskwichi, Wiskaigan, on Treaty 6 territory. We take questions from curious Edmontonians about local history, and we find out the answers together. Let's Find Out is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. And this episode, it's a story about how much a landscape can make us feel like we're at home, a story about why it matters to get multiple sources, and uh, it's also a story about the joy of cooking. But let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Let's meet our curious Edmontonian for this episode. Hi, my name is Allison Brooks Starks. Um, I've always lived in Treaty 6. I was born in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and now I'm in Edmonton, Alberta, so right along the same river. And you, you snuck in a question to this season. <laughs> Yeah, I sent in a spy with a planted question, so I, I wasn't at the event, um, but uh, I'm glad my question weaseled its way in. So it was to do with um, how did folks from the Ukraine end up where they ended up in Canada? Was it due to similar landscape features of the Ukraine? Cool. It's a, I, like, I like the question um, because it overlaps with a couple things that I'm interested in and also don't know much about. Um, one being um, like waves of Ukrainian settlement. Um, I'm, I'm, I also hadn't really looked into how people picked where they ended up. Um, but also I really like thinking about how the look of a landscape might influence people's choice to be there. Um, yeah, I... I on the, like a surface level, like that's kind of neat to think about people being influenced by that. But also I'm really curious about this, this idea of like transported landscapes about sort of the flip side, maybe that, um, people make a landscape look like the place that they're from. Um, what got you curious about this? Tell me, tell me about the, the whole story. Great. So I went to find the motherland with my cousin, Rachel, um, and your family's from Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, my great grandma, came from Ukraine. So we went to go find her hometown. And we did it. Like, we found it. We were pretty impressed with ourselves. Um, we, co- we didn't find, we couldn't find much, um, like, genealogy, because it, we realized, oh, shoot, this is all in Ukrainian, of course, and it's using a different character set. So it was hard to find people, but we did find the place. And we got to this small town, Ukraine. It's actually now in Poland because the border moved. And we just looked at it and we were like, oh my gosh, this looks like Winyard, Saskatchewan. This looks like the farmland right around my grandma's hometown. So my great grandma came to a place that looked, looked very similar. Yeah, we just, I mean, we just drove there. But then we didn't see many people. We were kind of shy to talk to folks. When we were in small towns, everybody spoke Ukrainian. So, you know, we we weren't brave enough to go knock on some farmer's doors. But we just explored the town. We got into the church, um, which happened to be unlocked because someone was watering the plants. So that was really great. We went to the gas station. Um, but it, it looks... I think it's lucky that it was there because it looks like um not many folks are there anymore what's yeah. the name of the town um it looks to me like Kobolinica Walowska but when we heard other people say it 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 that's totally wrong so maybe I'll learn today how to say it yeah okay so we're looking at a picture uh, of is that your cousin yeah. Rachel yeah by a road sign that uh, your best guess was Kobylinica Woloska? Yeah, that's my best guess, but I know it's incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the church. So, you know, now we're starting to see a prairie landscape. There's the plant water. There's a woman kneeling near the altar at the front. Watering the plants, not praying. <laughs> yes, exactly. We're looking at these other uh, pictures now of I guess farmers' fields and uh, what what about this resembles Saskatchewan to you? Um, everything <laughs> it just looks exactly like it. Like this could have been taken. I don't think I could tell if you showed me this and said, "Is this Poland, Ukraine, or is this 
<laughs> Saskatchewan, Southern Saskatchewan, I wouldn't be able to tell. Um, it like some planted trees uh, for windbreaks, trees here and there, but then overall just these divided farmlands with different crops and the big blue sky, really vibrant sky. Um, we also had some more rolling landscape pictures. Yes, I, I remember this place. We worked hard to translate to get our pierogies. <laughs> the pierogies were unreal good. <laughs> they were so good. And we fully embraced that and ate a lot. <laughs> I think what I would like about that, if they picked it for the similarity, is that I'm more connected to the Ukraine in my love for the prairies than I thought. And that I'm more connected to that, to the land of Ukraine through the land of Saskatchewan. Um, and I think it also lends a different quality to how I think of their experience. Like maybe they were more comfortable or like you say, did they build it to be more comfortable or was it that they found a place that was um, ingrained in a way that it was suited to them? Mm -hmm. um, so it makes me feel heartened that it might have been familiar. If they didn't pick it for that reason, and it was just like, well, you were assigned these plots of land by the government. Uh, it would, I, I don't, then I wonder about like how they would have maintained that connection to home, or did they try to cut, off, cut that off emotionally, or did they try to find ways that, that made them feel more comfortable and more um, connected to, to this place? Let's Find Out is made possible this season partly with support by Taproot Edmonton. Taproot is a generator of all sorts of journalism projects that start with what you're curious about. That's why they've got a story garden where members can suggest story ideas about the city. That's why they've got roundup newsletters about food, business, health innovation, city council, music, and tech. And it's why they've got another podcast going called Speaking Municipally. Speaking Municipally covers this gap that's emerged in our city where not enough media are keeping track of what's going on at City Hall. So every week, the hosts, Mac and Troy, walk you through all the important stuff you might have missed. And they're funny and smart and pithy enough to make you care about zoning regulations. Seriously. Find out more about all of Taproot's work and how you can support it by becoming a member at taprootedmonton.ca. And thanks to those of you who've already signed up. All right, back to the story. So this felt like a question that could partly be answered by academic research. Books, journal articles, just a heads up, one definite limitation of the research in this episode is that the academic sources that we consulted had a lot more to say about settlers immigrating from Europe than about the indigenous people they displaced here. We'll try to broaden the context later in the show, but for now, just keep that in mind. Allison had actually got the ball rolling with a book that she read called Baba's Kitchen Medicines. It's by an ethnobotanist at the University of Alberta talking about lots of folk medicines that early Ukrainian settlers made from the plants all around them. Page three, the Aspen Parkland region, a mixture of both wooded and grassland vegetation running through the central regions of the prairie provinces was seen as ideally suited to all their needs. This landscape closely resembled that of their homeland and it contained numerous trees for building materials and fuel, grassy areas for animal forage and rich black agricultural soil for growing crops that that bodes well for this thesis <laughs> absolutely it's and done and case closed <laughs> um yeah this is a really cool book too i love the the maps that it has of the regions that people were coming from um uh, coming from uh yeah the, so uh, like this is one of those messy regions that has been tossed back and forth from one empire to another, to one country to another. Um, so from what I've learned, most of the Ukrainian settlers in the prairies were coming from two provinces, Galicia and Bukovina, which in the 
end of the 19th century were part of Austria-Hungary, and then some of it got taken by Poland, and now some of it is in Ukraine. So this is why sometimes people's ancestors are like, uh... Yeah, we're sort of from Ukraine-ish. Yeah, absolutely. Can relate. And also, looking at this map, I was like, wait, what is Ukraine? (laughs) I don't actually know that fact. (laughs) Just, like, cobbled together, like, a bunch of cultures? Or is there, like, a cultural through line that... I'm just... That has unearthed that question for me. Mm. That what even do we mean when we say that? Apparently, some of the reading I was doing said that when people... When the first Ukrainian settlers came here in 1891 to Canada, they were settling in the Edna Star colony near Edmonton. And at the time, they all had Austrian passports. So all the immigration officials treated them like German-speaking Austrians. And I really like this map of the Ukrainian block settlements throughout the prairies. Because this shows me why I thought everyone, all the settlers, were Ukrainian. (laughs) because they're all in this band of the places that I've lived (laughs) the only places that I've like lived and um gone to school like my grandma's around this area Yorkton yeah Winyard is within this area then you know lots of people from Prince Prince Albert there there's a bunch of Ukrainians there lots of folks go to Saskatoon for school so and then now I'm in Edmonton so this is why I thought Ukrainian heritage was more common because I've only you've only lived on this one diagonal line. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I live in this band, um, just under the boreal in the Aspen Parkland. Yeah. yeah. And this idea that folks intentionally sought out homesteads on the Aspen Parkland diagonal from Edmonton to the bottom east corner of Manitoba, this idea was kind of backed up by the stack of research I gathered from the library. Only, it seemed like there were maybe five things influencing where Ukrainian folks moved. So, thing one, what Joseph Oleski recommended. One of the people who started encouraging Ukrainian settlers to come to Canada was this guy, Joseph Oleski. Have you ever heard of him? No, I haven't. Neither had I. Um, So uh, he was apparently a professor of agriculture in Lviv. He uh, took a trip through Canada, um, visited the Edmonton area, visited southeast Manitoba, um, and started publishing these pamphlets that recommended people come here. This is one of the books I found on this topic. So this is by uh, John Lear. Uh, He's a Manitoba-based author. Community and Frontier, the Ukrainian Settlement in the Canadian Parkland is the name of this book. This is about mostly a settlement in Manitoba. He wrote two pamphlets, one in Ukrainian, one in Polish, um, that apparently were really widely distributed and encouraged uh, what he calls a deluge of Ukrainian immigration into Western Canada. Um, So don't let anyone tell you that literature doesn't matter. (laughs) Nice. You go, Joe. Olescu sent some people ahead to kind of survey and find lands that he thought would be good for Ukrainian settlers to move to. Hmm. And um, so he sent them with some criteria of what to look for. And it seems like this was one of the things that influenced what lands people chose. So one of these guys that he sent was this guy, Kirill Ogenik. Um He was an immigrant also bent on homesteading in Western Canada. Picked by Olescu as a natural leader, he followed Olescu's advice to seek areas adjacent to German-speaking settlers where mixed farming was possible and where extensive areas of unsettled land could support a contiguous block of Ukrainian settlement. So um, there were a lot of Volksdeutsch, or like German-speaking people in the same regions back in Europe that a lot of these folks are coming from. And I guess the theory was that uh, some of the Ukrainian settlers spoke a little bit of German, um, and then these like Mennonite, uh, for example, um, German-speaking settlers here in Canada they spoke a little Ukrainian, so they could share information and farming tips. And it seems to have, um, for example, influenced why the Stuart Burn colony was a place that people picked to live. This is in southeast Manitoba, uh, and it's close to where some Mennonite folks were. Thing two, what the government of Canada wanted. Immigration policy changed um, 
sort of before and after this one guy, uh, Clifford Sifton, especially um, as an immigration minister, he seems to have had a lot of influence on attracting and encouraging Ukrainian settlers to come here. So I, I, in this book, uh, Places of Last Resort um, by David Wood. So there was a sense that um, it wasn't wasn't great having all these um, non-Anglo, non-Northern European folks here, but they seemed to uh, take on uh, tasks that other people didn't want to take on. They seemed to take on crappier land and stick with it more. Um, so there was sort of a begrudging acceptance of like, ah, okay, these people seem like they, they're kind of a, a good fit for the task, at least. Can we, can we please lament that this is the same? <laughs> I love this uh, sort of illustration of that idea of Ukrainians being um, willing to put up with stuff that other settlers weren't. Uh, so in 1930, there was the Saskatchewan Royal Commission on Immigration and Settlement um, in response to sort of the depression, the, the like dry land conditions, the erosion and whatnot. And um, okay, so uh, this is testimony from the secretary of the White Fox United Farmers of Canada branch. Um, his last name is Collins. So there's a little bit of a Q&A back and forth to the commission. Um, what proportion of the homesteaders do you know are successful? In our school district, there are 87 quarters. 11 of the original settlers are still there. So the question seems, the questioner seems surprised. Do you mean that the other fellows threw up the sponge? <laughs> and Colin says, I mean that they threw up the sponge, and I think I would be safe in saying that those conditions prevail all over. I, I've never heard that expression before. We, it, bring it back. We got to bring it back. <laughs> um, so the questioner uh, says, of the homesteads taken in 1929, how many do you think will stick? And Colin says, I figure about 50% will stick. The questioner says, why? And Colin says, because they are a different nationality and they are forming a colony. They're mostly Ukrainians and they will be satisfied with a lower standard of living. They're coming from practically intolerable conditions in their own country. The standard here will be a little better. Wow. Wow. Um, so this seemed to be... Uh, a through line um, from the 1890s through till the 1940s is Ukrainian settlers would put up with land conditions that other people just found um, intolerable. So that partly influenced um, uh, the idea of them as like good settlers to bring in. Yeah, they they wouldn't throw up the sponge. Sorry, did you have something? To well, I was just thinking this was an example of how they could tough it out. We're looking at one of their early homestead shelters and it is just like an a-frame lean-to made of brush even sifton had some um requirements of them uh to to sort of make it public publicly palatable um because um opposition press at the time were describing ukrainian and other slavic slavic immigrants as quote the scum of europe uh moral lepers and the sweepings of european jails um so to kind of keep those tensions at a dull roar, um, Sifton's, uh, Sifton's approach was to expect Ukrainians to keep a low profile, to stay on the land, and to embrace assimilation into the dominant Anglo-Canadian society. Um, wow. Yeah. So I think an interesting tension of like what land people were picking and what land people were encouraged to pick was um, that government officials didn't want blocks of Ukrainians to be so big that they would be unpalatable to um, like British and French and American born settlers. Hmm. Wow. That um, my, you know, Ukrainian was lost the language in our family and I hadn't realized that the pressure was so blatant. Hmm. Like, yep, just don't be so Ukrainian. Yeah. I, I thought it was more, pressure from their community members, but it sounds like it was also maybe from the higher ups or policy wise. Yeah. It's interesting that that had a physical impact in that immigration officials where they noticed that people started coming and grouping and in blocks. Um, and I'll go into some of the reasons for that. And that, so immigration officials were encouraging people not to group so much. They wanted them to start new areas, new little clusters. Thing three, finding land that looked like good quality land in Western Ukraine, especially land with lots of trees. 
Okay, and then we come to the land looking the same, which does seem to have been a factor. Um, uh, I found other sources to kind of back that up. Um, so uh, here we come back to John Lear's book, uh, Community and Frontier. This is about the Stuart Byrne colony in Manitoba, but generally about the, he's talking about sort of the principles of how people pick land. And I thought this is really interesting. He says um, people were judging land based on their experience farming in Europe. Um, so they were kind of looking for places that were similar in terms of being a little bit hilly and having some wood on it. Um, but how they were judging what that meant was based on what it meant to have wood on your land in Europe. Um, and it wasn't quite the same here. So uh, I want to read you some of this. Um, uh, so some immigrants arrived in Manitoba expecting to receive a developed farm with livestock and buildings in place. Others were swayed by their relatives' optimistic accounts of their own situations, accounts that were intended to rationalize their move to Canada and place their situations in the best light. Meanings did not always transfer well between the new world and the old. To have a neighbor plow one's field had different implications in Manitoba and Galicia, which was one of these provinces in Ukraine. In Canada, it suggested a lack of capital or equipment and hence poor economic circumstances. In Galicia, it implied the opposite. Um, only the wealth could only the wealthy could afford to hire labor. So a simple statement that a settler had his land plowed for him would indicate to a reader in Galicia that all was well and that settlers were making enviable progress. Whoa, that is so interesting. And yeah. the, it was the complete opposite. Yeah. I really love the the thing about looking for places with trees. Um, mm. And this is another thing that uh, apparently didn't quite mean the same thing as, as people expected it to, but it, it, it's very practical, I guess, why people wanted an area with uh, lots of wood. So uh, this is a book called Storied Landscapes by Francis Swiripa. Um, so this is more generally about different ethno-religious groups that moved to the prairies. Practice adopt Ukrainians that trees meant good soil for growing crops. So many chose homesteads in the infertile interlake region of Manitoba. Cultural conditioning since emancipation from serfdom in 1848 also convinced them of the desirability of land with trees because it meant access to wood for building or heat without having to pay a landlord. So they passed over the plains in favor of the parkland that required intensive labor to clear. Yeah, uh, and they associated that with good soil quality, too, because in Ukraine, I guess they were in places where if you had trees, that meant that the soil was really good. And then they came to Canada and realized that didn't 100% translate. Right. We've got a lot of trees that can grow quite well in the sand. Um, that's interesting that, uh, yeah, to even think on the outset, we're farmers, let's go where there's trees rather than the prairies. So it's cool to hear the reasons why. Thing four, having friends and family and German-speaking folks nearby. Yeah, but settlers were, like, the reasons why people were clumping and wanting to um, pick these parkland areas and not the open plains um, was also partly because of ties. They wanted to be around friends and family. They wanted to be around people that they were familiar with, they were comfortable with. Um, whether that was like fellow Ukrainians or um, German-speaking people that they felt some kinship to. Um, so that seems to be what initially attracted people to this region of Alberta, really close to Edmonton, um, was that there were um, Volksdeutsche, like German-speaking people from Galicia. Um, and so that brought Ukrainian folks into Star. And then more people came to the Edna Star colony because of um, the physical environment and, and people that they knew. There are these really cute, uh, to me, they feel really cute. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. Um, anecdotes about this. Um, so this is a journal article from uh, 1983. This is also from that author, John Lear, um, from the University of Winnipeg. Uh, so this article is uh, Government Coercion in the Settlement of Ukrainian Immigrants in Western Canada. This is 1898. Um, so this is the, the Fish Creek incident. Are you familiar with the Fish Creek area um, in Saskatchewan? Okay, so this is a, this is a bit of a story, um, but apparently, again, the federal government felt all this pressure to kind of break people up a little bit, disperse them a little more. Um, so uh, people would sort of pile up in Winnipeg or Saskatoon. They would pile up in the major centers when they arrived. Um, <laughs> I mean, I like that image. <laughs> Sounds cozy. Um, uh, and then they wouldn't want to go 
to the places that the government was encouraging them to go. And again, the government didn't have legal power to tell people you have to move here. But uh, apparently the federal government really wanted to start um, a colony in this place, uh, Fish Creek. So um, uh, dun, 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 dun. colonization agent Spears was entrusted with the delicate task of endeavoring to locate several families, at least of the next large party at that point. Shortly thereafter, a large consignment of Ukrainian immigrants arrived in Winnipeg, much to the dismay of Commissioner McCreary, who was ill and unable to get about. Overworked and at the limit of his patience, McCreary disposed of his problem by dispatching all 53 families, about 300 to 350 people, to Saskatoon under the control of Spears, who was instructed to settle them all at Fish Creek, in Saskatchewan. Unaware of this, the immigrants were led to believe that they were bound for settlement at either Edmonton or Dauphin. The reason for the deception, explained McCreary, was that Quote, it is simply an impossibility by persuasion to get a number of these people to go to a new colony, no matter how favored, and some ruse has to be played, or lock them in the cars as I did last year with those bound to Yorkton. As I did last year with those bound to Yorkton? Yeah, lock them in the cars. My um, goodness. As was bound to happen, the immigrants protested bitterly and broke into open revolt when they learned of their intended destination. They demanded to be taken to Edmonton or Dauphin, where many claimed to have friends and relatives. 75 of the Ukrainians refused to submit to government direction or to consider location at Fish Creek. These began to walk back to Regina. Whoa! Their major complaint was the treeless environment and the absence of established Ukrainian settlers. Absolutely. As we're learning, we need our friends and we need our trees. Spears grew desperate and requested the Northwest Mounted Police to turn them back by force of arms if necessary, but his request was refused. The intensity of the Ukrainians' reaction took Spears by surprise. I, I want to look up how long that walk would have been oh yeah uh definitely from uh fish creek to regina okay so driving that's a three hour 24 minute trip walking we've got two days and 14 hours oh my god (laughs) can you imagine being mad enough to walk for two days and 14 hours i i no i can't imagine (laughs) I mean, you'd certainly have time to walk it off. Yeah. And thing five is this vast, complex set of things going on with other people living on this land and being pushed off of it. It is a much bigger discussion than we can fully bite off in this episode. The fallout of the Red River Rebellion, the lands that Métis people were entitled to when they signed script, the displacement of many First Nations groups, bison being hunted, signing of the treaties, and also the other settler groups that moved into the prairies before Ukrainians. One place to start learning about this stuff might be Let's Find Out episode 14, where we talk about the Papas Chase Band here in Edmonton, and we'll keep digging into these topics on future episodes. To sum up, based on some academic literature on this subject, my hypothesis was that Ukrainian folks moved to the places they did based on what Joseph Oleski recommended, what the government of Canada wanted, what looked like good quality land in Ukraine, especially places with trees, what land was close to friends and family and folks who spoke German, and what wasn't already taken. Sort of. The thing is, it's always good to get multiple sources, right? So we headed to the University of Alberta to meet a guy who'd make this whole subject a lot more magical and tasty. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's a really interesting, very complicated picture. There's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's good. It's good to get the nuance. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, let's, let's take a bike trip over to the U of A. And uh, let's let's get some perspective um, from the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies on our question. Cannot wait. <laughs> Great. We'll head there in a minute. But first, Let's Find Out is brought to you in part by a podcast called Overdue Finds, presented by the Edmonton Public Library. And every time I say that, I'm trying to enunciate the D in finds, Overdue Finds. It's hosted by Bryce Crittenden and Caroline Land. They talk about movies, music, books, stuff you might want to check out next time you're at the library. It comes out every two weeks, and you can find the show at epl.ca slash podcast. That's Overdue Finds, epl.ca slash podcast. This episode is also brought to you by the Well Endowed Podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation, hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonking and produced by Lisa Pruden. It explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant place to live. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps people make endowment funds, and the podcast tells the story of how those endowments intersect with the community. And I've actually been making stories for the podcast too. So if you want to hear history stories, like my latest one about the house where Marshall McLuhan lived in Edmonton when he was a little baby, well, listen to the Well Endowed podcast. 
at wellendowedpodcast.com. All right, back to the show. So, Allison and I bike over to the U of A. This is so much fun. I feel really lucky. Good afternoon for a bike ride down Saskatchewan Drive. Okay, so we're, we're off to find Pembina Hall. Pembina Hall! Kind of modest brick building. We were there to meet a guy named Yars Balin. Uh, we'll go wherever. Follow me. Come right. Yars. Hello, great to meet you. He walked us over to a conference room and left us there for a minute. Whatever, set it up the way it works for you. I'm going to make one quick call downstairs for Kay. a second. Sure. During which Allison took a look at some of the uh, artwork on the walls. What are you looking at? Um, the Ukrainian Famine and Genocide Memorial Day Act. And I was wondering if Holodomar related at all to this immigration, but it was later. 32 to 33. There's a copy of this bill, this Provincial Act recognizing the Holodomor, and it's, it's actually signed by Jean Soseski, who was an MLA at the time, and uh, Premier Stomach. Yaris hmm. came back in, and I liked him right away. Good storyteller, great twinkle in his eye. Hi, my name is Yaris Balin. I am the director of the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies, and I'm also the coordinator of the COOL Ukrainian Canadian Studies Center at the CIA, Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies, uh, a unit whose mission it is to research and publish and disseminate knowledge about the history of Ukrainians in Canada. When we say cool, it's not C-O-O-L, cool? No, it's K-U-L-E, short for Kulevich, actually. But, but still very popular, I assume. Still very popular. <laughs> <laughs> and the most gratifying thing happened when Allison asked him her question. Yars hit all the same beats that I did, starting with our old friend Joe. Well, obviously, that uh, the Ukrainians who came to Canada, especially in the first wave of immigration before the First World War, uh, where they ended up is partly the result of Canadian government policy, that uh, Canada was looking at the prairies, which they regarded as empty, which, of course, they weren't. They were native people here. But uh, there was always this fear that if they didn't settle it, that the Americans would settle it and it would be the prairies would become part of the United States. So they uh, canvassed Europe trying to attract immigrants, particularly from Western Europe, got as many as they could from there. Uh, and those people mostly settled in the southern and open part of the prairies. Um, but there were still vast tracts of land that were available and so they turned especially to Eastern Europe, to the Austro-Hungarian Empire in particular, uh, to attract immigrants from there. And in Austria-Hungary, there's a problem. There was land was short, families were large, uh, there was lots of poverty, a few opportunities, economic opportunities. Uh, there were some political issues as well. So there were people there who were eager to leave. And Canada seemed like a pretty good uh, option. They learned about Canada in part from uh, a trip that was made in 1891 by a man named Joseph Olesko, who was a, an agronomist and who, uh, this, he was active in an immigration society, which was promoting immigration partly to help people in Western Ukraine, to help them escape their poverty and, and their limited horizons. And so he contacted the Canadian government and arranged to go on a tour of Canada to look at what exactly the settlement opportunities would be. Part of his job meant he arrived in Ottawa, but then he headed out by train to Western Canada. And uh, this was actually, sorry, I made a mistake. This was 1895. The, the first immigrants had already begun arriving. And he uh, went and visited some of the early colonies established by them on the prairies and wrote up a very detailed account. And being an agronomist, of course, he described landscapes mm -hmm. Uh, the geography, uh, economic uh, potential of the place. And so his account is a very fascinating one. He wrote two of them, one, about, one called About Immigration and another one called About Free Lands. The uh, landscape, of course, was similar in many ways to where they came from, but different as well. So the first thing is, is that many of the first wave immigrants came from the Podilia region, an ethnographic region in western Ukraine, kind of the Piedmont to the Carpathian Mountains. And so- I have no idea what a Piedmont is. Piedmont is the approaches to the mountains. So not in the mountains, like foothills basically. Oh, okay. But it's kind of a more rolling terrain uh, and not, it's not flat. It's not like the terrain around Saskatchewan. It's a, it's a gently rolling terrain and, and intercut with ravines and rivers and uh, things like that. And 
Also, uh, the area that they settled, I mean, the open prairie uh, that was settled earlier by immigrants from Western Europe primarily, uh, the land that was settled by Ukrainians was primarily parkland terrain, not, not steppe or, or open prairie. Uh, parkland meaning that it's a mixture of forest and fields. And uh, that's a lot like the landscape, to, or the parts of it are like the landscape in Western Ukraine, that it's, uh, uh, you have the southern steppes in Ukraine that are like the area around Saskatchewan, and then you have the parkland terrain, or what in Ukrainian is called Lysostep, forest steppe, mixture of land and field, or uh, forest and field. So uh, the, uh, it was familiar in that sense. However, we have to remember that the landscape uh, wasn't quite the way we see it today either, mm. that um, forest fires were huge on the prairies. They used to sweep clean uh, large chunks of forest on the prairies. And I've always been shocked at seeing early pictures of Edmonton that it's much more treed now than it was then. Uh, I've seen pictures along the Victoria Trail in Smoky Lake County where it's almost treeless uh, that are now for pretty, you know, they're quite, quite forested as well. So, um, but there were also open areas too, obviously. The fact that it was partly treed in some ways was also an attraction for the Ukrainians, that they often chose quarter sections that were treed because in the old country, you had to pay for wood, firewood. You had to pay for wood if you wanted to build. The, the big landowners owned the forests. And so you wanted to go and chop wood? Great, pay for it. Oh. Here they come and they say, wow, I don't have to pay for wood anymore. Uh, of course, it also meant having to physically clear the land to, to make it suitable for planting crops on. And that was a brutal and difficult task. But uh, that was one of the attractions, though, oddly enough, that uh, if, the, if a piece of land was forested or had forest on it, that would be an added bonus because they, could, they knew that they would have free firewood. So one thing I'll say so far is uh, I feel really relieved. I'm like, whew, because some of the like secondary source, like book research we did, seems to be in line with everything you're saying. Is there any gaps that we from what we looked at so far? It's sounding good. It's sounding like we're right on. I'm wondering about how settlers in this area or Ukrainians might have changed the landscape, because they were clearing a lot of trees, so that suggests fewer. But if they were stopping the routine forest fires, maybe there are more? How might they have affected the land? Well, I mean, obviously, they, the, the big part was that they did clear large swaths to, of land to put into productive use, and most of it is still being farmed. Um, productive meaning, like, for agriculture? Yeah, for cultivation. Uh, it's kind of interesting that for the, 18, uh, the 100th anniversary of Ukrainian settlement in Canada, one of the projects... Uh, that the Centennial Committee came up with here was to uh, replant forest. <laughs> so symbolically, they planted a forest, you know, on the Yellowhead Highway, just as you cross the bridge going uh, just east of uh, the North Saskatchewan River, just west of the North Saskatchewan River, where the highway kind of divides to go across the river. There's a, you'll see there's a stand of trees there. Those are all planted as a symbolic replanting and returning to the natural state, the forested state, uh, the land that the, uh, the farmers had cleared. Uh, clearly, uh, some of them also uh, drained over time, uh, would drain uh, sloughs mm. uh, to get more cropland. Uh, there's less of that now, uh, except, of course, when there have been periods of drought and the sloughs dry up and so they get the land gets cultivated. and. Uh, uh, but that, I think, is the biggest change, that um, uh, the elimination of, of tracts of forest. How did uh, any differences that people encountered in the landscape compared to what they were coming from in Ukraine change people's lifestyle? Like, I'll give you an example of um, Ukrainians in Ukraine lived close to the land. They... Uh, harvested a variety. They, they also gathered uh, berries and mushrooms and were very knowledgeable about how to use things in the environment to supplement their diets uh, and their needs. So they come to Canada and there are some things that are quite similar. So for instance, uh, highbush cranberry, which in the Ukrainian is called kalena. Uh, in Cree, it's, it's called nipimnana. And uh, the Ukrainians used the one plant, just as one plant, for instance, the berries 
Uh, they'd crush and make juice that's full of vitamin C and um, uh, quite so, so it's, it's healthy to drink it. And, uh, but you could use the roots and crush them, dry them and crush them and uh, use it for a diuretic. You have uh, the bark that could be used and made into a tea that was like aspirin, uh, pain painkiller. Uh, so they used various parts of the plant. They come here and they find there are kalena bushes here, uh, which the native people also used. Yeah. And they learned from native people how to use some of the things in the local environment. And they also helped teach native people some of the things that they use, so mushroom picking and things that uh, uh, Ukrainians were very familiar with. So there was this exchange of knowledge in terms of the plants, their healing properties uh, that occurred uh, between the communities and uh, showed how they uh, shared this, you know, the similarities in their environment and differences in their environment they learned from each other. That's cool. We were talking about maybe trying to make one of these recipes from this um, book that Allison found, Baba's Kitchen Medicines. I feel like we should look for a high bush cranberry one. You can definitely find us some high bush cranberry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's, it grows in the river valleys here and stuff. Uh, the bush is a little bit different here. I think it's a little bit uh, higher than the one in Ukraine or vice versa, but but there there's some subtle differences. But no, it's basically it's the same plant, and they were so happy to see it because, for Ukrainian for Ukrainians in particular, high bush cranberry or kolena is um, a plant that's really rich in symbolism and symbol you know in importance. So uh, there are hundreds of folk songs about it. There are um, uh, beliefs associated with it that Cossacks who fell in battle they would bury them and, and build this mound over it and plant a kalena bush it became a symbol of Ukrainian independence and Ukraine's yearning for independence it's kind of like the maple leaf is for Canada the leaf of the kalena and the kalena berries are for Ukrainians that must have seemed really cool to find it here then Kalina. Yeah, so they were very, I said, there was one plant that was, I said, familiar from the old country, but there are other plants here that they didn't know that from the old country that they learned from native people. Oh, what do you use this for? Well, you know, it was for making a poultice or for treating this or that. Uh, and I said vice versa, that uh, there, were, there, were no, there was knowledge that the Ukrainian peasants brought that they shared with their native neighbors. So, Is the Kalina plant still, does it still hold that symbolism in Ukraine today? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's still a... Um, the, uh, until recently, the Ukrainian armed forces, for instance, on their shoulder patches had, a, had kalena leaves and berries. Um, so, um, uh, and I said there are some very patriotic songs, Oyuluzi Chervona Kalena, that's um, well, it's, uh, inspired by the kalena. Could we uh, hear a little bit of that one? Oyuluzi Chervona Kalena. Pochililася чогось наша славна Україна зажурилася, а ми тую червону калину підіймемо, а ми брати славну Україну, гей гей розвеселимо. And goes on. So thrilled. I don't think the words were 100% accurate, but uh, close enough. <laughs> we're definitely gonna. This is the plant we're gonna find. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, you can tell you can tell the kalena in the fall uh, when it's ripened. Uh, you can smell it, and the uh, best way to probably describe the smell of kalena is like sweaty gym socks, old t teenage gym bag, uh, uh, and some people. So you make jam and jelly with it. Uh, I heard a wonderful story from. Uh, somebody in Fort Saskatchewan in a senior's home and uh, there was this smell that just permeated the building and everybody was wondering and, and one of the residents it was this older gentleman who nobody had seen for a couple of days and they were sort of wondering oh I wonder you know so they got the uh, oh <laughs> <That's so dark. laughs> they got the the uh, building manager to check on Mr. Sons open the door and and what it was is he was making Kalena jam. <laughs> they thought they might find him dead three days. Ah, <laughs> uh, our famous plant. <laughs> yes, it's so true, that smell in the fall. Wow. You can smell it in the bush when it, yeah. on a cool day and stuff like that. You, you can smell it before you see the plant. And yeah. uh, some people, you know, some people find it gross, some people, but it's like mm. cheese, you know, like cheese smells a certain way. and. It's other people don't mind it at all. It's just a Kalina smell. Yeah, I, I love it. Smells like fall, you know, yeah. in part, and the leaves going that salmon color. Yeah, Beautiful yeah. in the fall. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
This is great for me. This is all the questions I had. What great. are you curious about? I, anything else? I would like you to try to in, uh, pronounce for me the town my great grandma's from. Right. This. So I think this is maybe the county. That's that's and that's Kobolinica Voloska. Kobolinica Voloska. Where is this near? Do you remember when you were there? So southern Poland, near the Ukrainian border. What's, Near the what, what Ukrainian was, border, what was so the nearest city, Przemysl or Perem? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, so that's how you say it. This is great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you oh, so much. So Allison and I left just gushing. Couldn't believe he sang for us. Couldn't believe highbush cranberries grew in Canada and Ukraine. And we both put out a call to see if our friends had any hanging around in their freezers. Which is how we ended up with a baggie of frozen highbush cranberries, Rubinum opulus, in Allison's kitchen. Making juice. Two cups cranberries. We poured out some of the berries. Maybe I'll pick that twig out of there. Added them to some boiling water, mashed them around, <laughs> squeezed some fresh oranges to sweeten it a bit. I like pulp myself. You? I like pulp too. Pro pulp. And waited. Okay, so the Cree word for Kalina, I'm not sure how to say it, but it looks like Nepiminana was um, anglicized to be Pembina, and we were at Pembina Hall. Whoa. Where we met the Ukrainian expert was in a building that was Kalina. That's so crazy. Oh my gosh. It says it right here. It says right here. Pembina Hall is uh, the name of a heritage building on the U of A campus, which is appropriately the home of both the Aboriginal Studies program at the U of A as well as the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies. What the heck? <laughs> yeah. We weren't 100% sure these are the right species of plants that are called Kalina in Alberta mm. until the smell Maybe. woke up Allison's partner. Hi. What are you doing? <laughs> wow. Okay, you have to guess. It smells interesting. What does it smell like to you? Let me smell it like that. Like warm feet? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm kidding. It doesn't smell that bad. Okay, so we have um, our uh, almost three quarters of a liter of Kalina juice. Uh, And now we're going to we're going to taste test just the Kalina. And then we're also going to try it with uh, the recipes recommendation of adding maple syrup and orange juice. Cannot wait. Let's do it. It's such a good color. Oh, this like happy pink. It's very ecstatic. Yeah. yeah. Cheers. Mm. Oh, definitely sour. Mm-hmm. This feels like something I would not have enjoyed as a kid, but I can enjoy now. Yeah, yeah. Very good description. <laughs> <laughs> In goes the pulpy orange juice. How much are we adding? I think we should add more than that. <laughs> it calls for a teaspoon only. All right. All right. Taste test two. Taste test two. That's fantastic. That's really, really nice. So uh, how do you feel? You, you approached me with this question about whether your ancestors picked some places to live in Canada because they look kind of like home. Um, Alison, how do you feel about what we found out? I feel 100% satisfied. <laughs> yeah, I feel really great about the whole experience. It was so much fun. It felt like, um, huh. it felt so local, but also so rooted or historical or like this through line through time and through different places, but similarities between different places. It was fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I, I feel way more tied to this land now after having had some of this juice too. Me too. I'm absolutely going to look at those plants differently and feel a kinship with them. Mm-hmm. Cool. Thanks for letting me be on a research journey with you. Oh, thanks for the thanks for guiding me on it. It was so great. Thanks very much. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. Shameless shout out. Uh, Allison also does this really cool thing called Emberwood, which is like I call it uh, Nature Club for Queers. <laughs> Perfect. Really great summary. Yeah. <laughs> She also gives amazing uh, educational nature experiences. Absolutely. Yep. Come find me. I'll be outside. (laughs) See you there. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Let's Find Out is produced by Trevor Chow Fraser and me, Chris Chang and Phillips. Let us know what you think. You can email us at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. I do read everything you send. If you've asked for info about something that requires a little bit of research, I might take a little while to get back to you, but I love hearing what you're into. You can download all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, Spotify, even those personal surveillance devices everybody has, I mean, uh, smart speakers that everybody has now, and on letsfindoutpodcast.com. Sign up for our newsletter there too, under contact. We'll send out updates about stuff like a book club that we're doing this season, our next meetup for the book club will be Carol Kerisak Yoon's book, Naming Nature, which seems like a good fit because it's about taxonomy and about how we name life. And this episode led to a lot of confusion about high bush cranberries versus low bush cranberries and what people meant when they said colina and varieties of verbenum plants. More details for the book club on our website. By the way, if you want another chance to come say hi in person, I'm going to be at the Northwest Fest Film Festival on May 4th before a movie called The Trouble with Wolves. Um, It's about coexistence and wildlife conservation and living together with wolves. Seems like a good fit for what we're working on this season. Uh, The movie's at noon. If you want to come stop by, say hi. I'd love to meet you. Um, Also, you can get a 10% discount on general admission tickets. Just use the offer code APN2019 on checkout at their website, northwestfest.ca. All right. Thank you, Time. Thank you to Allison Brooks-Starks. Thanks to Andrea Weeb for smuggling in Allison's question. Thanks to Yars Ballin and Alexis Hilliard. Thanks to Sarah Carter, Shannon Stundenbauer, Mila Adair, David Mikowski, Jeff Papineau, and the McEwen Library for research help. Thanks to Justice Tamara Friesen and Kyle Kozowski for the Highbush Cranberries. And to Taproot Edmondson and the Emden Historical Board for supporting this podcast. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting it, especially Finn. Original music for this podcast by the sign of spring himself, Doug Hoyer. All right, that's it for this episode. Until next time, keep your questions coming.